Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio Acts 12, verses 1 through 19. This is the story of King Herod Agrippa I's terrible persecution of the church, namely his execution of James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, and his imprisonment of Peter. Our context is this. In Acts 11, in the previous chapter, in the first part of the chapter, we have Peter coming back from Cornelius' house in Caesarea and telling the church at Jerusalem how the gospel is spread to the Gentiles. And in the last half, last half of chapter 11, we have goings-on in the church of Antioch, the Gentile church, where some Jewish evangelists started evangelizing Gentiles instead of just Jews, and Agabus stood up and predicted the famine, and Paul and, and uh, Barnabas had gone to Tarsus to get Paul and bring him back to the church so that they could work in the church at Antioch. So that's our context. Now we start in verse 1 of chapter 12. About that time, King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church. Now what time are we talking about? The NIV Study Bible says there's a split in scholarly opinion. Some hold that chapters 11 and 12 follow straight on in a chronological line, in which case then, as soon as Peter gets back into Jerusalem, then... This is when Herod started on his persecution. Others hold that chapter 12 groups together events concerning Herod, and so they're not necessarily in a straight chronological line. I'm going to assume that it is. It's just easier that way. Uh, so this is where we are. We're, and we know, by the way, that Herod Agrippa I ruled from 41 to 44 AD. So that kind of narrows the chronology down a little bit. And So I always say that Acts Acts uh, 1 through 11 occurs through 30 through 40, in the 30s. And then we get to Acts 12, now we're, we're jumping up into the 40s, in the early 40s. What about this King Herod? Who is he? Well, we, as I said, we know he died in 44 AD. His name is Herod Agrippa I, his full name. There's so many Herods, they're hard to keep straight. So let's distinguish other Herods. Of course, Herod the Great ruled from 37 BC to 4 BC. He died the same year Jesus was born. He built the Jerusalem temple, which, of course, is called Herod's temple. He built, he rebuilt Ezra's temple, the one that was started in 520 B.C., right after the return from the Babylonian exile, which started in 586 B.C., and that temple was kind of pitiful, kind of small, and Herod built it up and made it a huge temple. That's Herod the Great. He was the, famous for being a first-rate murderer. He murdered his relatives, his wife, his three sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and many others. He was a real SOB. He murdered the Jerusalem babies, trying to murder uh, Jesus, the so-called slaughter, in slaughter of the innocents. He was famous for his love of public works. Besides that great temple, he built theaters, amphitheaters, monuments, pagan altars, fortresses all over the, uh, Israel. That's why they call him the Great. I always say in history, if somebody's called the Great, they're really jerks like Alexander the Great, blasphemous blasphemous evil people, blasphemous monsters. Well, that was the big Herod, Herod the Great. Then Herod the Great had sons, like, for example, Herod Antipas. He's the guy that ruled up in Galilee and also Perea, which is on the eastern coast of the Jordan River. And Herod Antipas beheaded John the Baptist. He was there and helped Pontius Pilate officiate the execution of Jesus. He was the uncle of this Herod in Acts 12, the uncle of Herod Agrippa I. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. So here we are. This Herod is Herod Agrippa I. Who is he? As I said, he's the nephew of Herod Antipas, the famous Herod Antipas, the one who beheaded John the Baptist and helped execute Jesus. He was the nephew of Herod Antipas. He actually took over Antipas' tetrarchy up there in Galilee when Antipas was exiled from 
Israel. He also got some extra uh, land. He got the Tetrarchy of Philip and Lysanias, other Tetrarchies east of the Sea of Galilee. And in AD 41, he got Judea and Samaria, according to the NIV Study Bible. So that's why they call him king now, because he's ruling all over Israel. His dominions were nearly as extensive as those possessed by Herod the Great, as Adam Clark says. For 30 years before this, there was no supreme authority over Judea. And then for three years, Herod Agrippa I ruled supreme from 41 to 44 AD. And there was never a supreme authority after Herod Agrippa I. So this was at a time when the power of Israel once again became concentrated into one ruler. And I guess he decided to use that power to start persecuting the church. Herod Agrippa I, by the way, was Herod the Great's grandson. Herod Antipas was Herod the Great's son. So that's who we're talking about here. Herod Agrippa I, he cruelly attacked, and we'll see how cruel in just a minute. Verse 2 in Acts 12. And he killed James, John's brother, with a sword. This, of course, is James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. Matthew 4.21. Going on from there, he, Jesus, saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Of course, these are famous disciples. He is known as James the Greater to distinguish him from James the Lesser, or James the Less, who was the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the apostles in one of the list. That James the Less was killed by Ananias the high priest during Nero's reign, which was in the 60s, about 20 years later. Most of the apostles got killed prematurely. He was This James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, and of course that's John the Apostle that wrote the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation, and the Gospel of John. This is... That John's brother, James, he was killed by a sword, it says in verse 2 of Acts 12. That means he was beheaded, just like Herod Agrippa's uncle, Herod Antipas, did to John the Baptist. So, like uncle, like nephew. Now, Jesus had warned the apostles of this in Matthew 20, verses 22 through 23. We read this. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Now, what this is referring to is when James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to Jesus. And one, they did this twice. One time it was at the behest of their mother. Where are we going to be ruling in your kingdom, in that messianic kingdom, that great and glorious political kingdom that they were anticipating? And they asked to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? I.e., are you going to be willing to be killed like I'm about to be killed? We are able, they said to him, in famous last words. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup. Ah, when did that happen? Well, John didn't drink Jesus' cup because he made it all the way to old age on the Isle of Patmos and later in Ephesus as an old man preaching the gospel. But James didn't make it. He didn't make it to 40 or 41 or 42 or 43 or 44, somewhere between 41 and 44. He's beheaded. So Jesus' prophecy indeed came true. James was beheaded. He did drink Jesus' cup. And then Jesus says, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it belongs to those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And so he's saying, look, guys, cool it. You weren't about being big shots in the kingdom. One of you is going to get killed. So now the original 12 apostles after James is killed in the early 40s, now down to 11. I say the original 12, that means the 11 of the originals plus Matthias who replaced Judas. So those 12 are now down to 11. And Adam Clark makes the point that number was never increased again. So now we see the the task of leadership of the church is being decentralized now as more and more people are getting saved. And now all over the world, there are people that you never heard of that are leading their little part of the body of Christ. And then the 12 apostles are gone now. This particular 
execution of James was a great loss because he was one of the three apostles that was closest to Jesus. Remember Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John going into Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter? Peter, James, and John were always together. Peter, James, and John in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying before his execution and arrest. So they lost a big three there. John and Peter are still alive. This is early 40s. Peter, by tradition, not by scripture, was apparently killed in the early 60s in Rome. Crucified upside down, people say. John made it all the way to his 90s, apparently, until he was old. James didn't. And again, all of this, you, you can't figure out why one made it and one didn't. I used to wonder why, why? Well, that's just the way it is. To God, it doesn't matter. They all, in heaven, you know, it doesn't matter if you die early or die late. You're going to be in heaven with Jesus if you believe in him. Acts 12, 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, that's when Herod Antipas saw, excuse me, excuse me, Herod Agrippa I, saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too. What pleased the Jews? The execution of James. He, Herod Agrippa I, proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. As John Gill says, the bloodthirsty, quote-unquote, evil generation of Jews who killed the prophets and killed Jesus, killed James and arrested Peter. Not satisfied with killing Jesus, they came after the apostles. Now, of course, Jesus had said that. He said, they're going to persecute you from synagogue to synagogue. He, he, he told James and John, hey, can you drink my cup? He, he knew that persecution, persecution was coming from these evil Jewish generation of people who destroyed the, tried to destroy the Messiah. Now, Herod... Agrippa I, of course, has his rulership through Roman authority. And this persecution is is an example of the typical Antichrist alliance between Romans and Jews. This lasted until Israel was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. And it's symbolized by the two beasts in Revelation. The land beast is rabbinic Judaism. The sea beast is Rome. And both of them came after the church. Now, Herod Agrippa had killed James. He was one of the pillars of the infant church. Probably that's not that we've got to distinguish this James, the son of the brother of John and the son of Zebedee. That's not the same James as James, the brother of Jesus, who got saved later on after Jesus's ministry and who who became one of the pillars of the infant church. He was still around. But this earlier James, the son of Zebedee, was gone. And Herod Agrippa finally says, "Okay, I got him. I'm going to get Peter, too, because he's a leader in the church. Take off the head, kill the snake. Adam Clark says Herod Agrippa, the first thought, if if. He could take down the leaders of the infant church, people like Peter and James, the son of John, Zebedee. The whole church would collapse. I don't know where the other pillar John was, but I don't think anybody does. Now, notice it says that when Herod Agrippa saw that it pleased the Jews, the execution of James pleased the Jews, this emphasizes the fact that Herod the Agrippa I was, had a ruling passion that he'd be popular. Popularity was his ruling passion, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, quoting a passage from Josephus. He actually was not naturally as cruel as some of his family was, but he would kill people in order to get popularity. Of course, that's not saying much. Herod the Great was so cruel. That, that's like saying, well, you're not, you're not as nasty as Genghis Khan, or you're not as nasty as Paul Pot or Joseph Stalin. That's not really saying too much. But at any rate, he wanted popularity, and he killed to get it. He proceeded to arrest Peter during the Days of Unleavened Bread. That's just a shorthand way of saying the Feast of Passover. You have Passover, and then you have seven days after that is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so they would say Passover referring to all of those eight days, or they would say Unleavened Bread referring to all those eight days. So the Days of Unleavened Bread is somewhere during that eight-day period. 
uh, scripturally, more precisely, it was seven days after Passover, unleavened bread. That's the that's the date, the, the the time when no leaven was allowed in Jewish houses. Reflected today, even the Seder common uh, commemorations where people run around the house, little kids looking for leaven so they can get rid of it. Leaven, of course, symbolizing evil. Here's a scripture of that. Exodus 12:15. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. That means either executed or banished. Exodus 12:19. Yeast must not be found in your house for seven days. If anyone eats something leavened, that person, whether a foreign resident or native of the land, must be cut off from the community of Israel. Now, Peter, Herod Agrippa arrested Peter on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but he didn't execute him then because it was considered highly improper to execute somebody during a feast day. It's kind of religious kind of thing. Like you don't, you don't execute somebody who's got his hands on the altar in the temple, that kind of thing. So he arrested him. He was waiting for, that, for the days of unleavened bread to be over. Then he was going to take him out of prison. He was going to kill him. He's going to execute him. Acts 12, verse 4. After the arrest... He, Herod Agrippa I, put him, Peter, in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. Four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. Four squads of four soldiers to guard one little prisoner? Why so? Why 16? Well, then, have a study Bible, and James Fawcett Brown point out that what you have here is one squad of, squad of four for each of the four watches of the night, the four Roman watches of the night. And they would rotate at the changing of the guard so that one set of soldiers didn't have to stay awake all night. Now, why was Herod Agrippa taking so much precaution with his prisoner, Peter, here? Herod may have remembered that Peter and the apostles had escaped before. You recall in Acts 5, 18, 19, we read this. So they, the Sanhedrin, arrested the apostles and put them in the city jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night, brought them out, and, they, and so the next morning, they convene the Sanhedrin. The high priest, probably Caiaphas, looks around and says, okay, bring the prisoner in. And the temple guard says, oh, so sorry, Mr. High Priest. He ain't here. He got out somehow. So Herod Agrippa I was not going to allow that to happen. And so he had soldiers everywhere. Here's a little side note, a little rabbit trail. The KGV translates this festival of unleavened bread that I just mentioned. Excuse me. says the Passover. Uh, the unleavened bread was mentioned in the previous verse, in verse 3, and verse 4, it's called Passover. And as I said, the Jews would call the whole eight days, technically, the first day was Passover, and the next seven days was unleavened bread. But the Jews would just call Passover, would say Passover, and refer to the whole eight days. Or sometimes they would say unleavened bread, and refer to the whole eight days. So we don't want to get confused by that. And the interesting thing here, that's my Holman Christian Study Bible's translation of the word Pascha, the Greek word Pascha with Passover. The KGV translates it Easter, and I've always thought, why would you translate Passover as Easter? That's, that comes from Astarte, one of the famous, the famous ancient Near Eastern fertility goddess, the one with many breasts, about 50 breasts, if you've seen the statues of her, and just a grotesque pagan god who was celebrated by painting eggs with various colors. You know, I call them Astarte eggs. Well, here's the King James translates that as Easter. Now, here's a good quote from Adam Clark about that translation. Perhaps there never was a more unhappy, not to say absurd, translation than that in our text. Every view we can take of this subject shows the gross impropriety of retaining a name every way exceptional, exceptionable, 
and palpably absurd. Way to go, Adam. Resurrection Sunday it is. It is not Easter. Of course, you know, how tradition Tradition over what's proper. Who always wins? Tradition. Culture and tradition always wins. Even amongst Christians who ought to know better. But they don't because of their ignorance. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Now, why was Herod planning to pull Peter out of prison right after the Passover? Of course, he was going to kill him. But because there was a lot of people there, probably, uh, out-of-towners come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, and so there would be a lot more people there that can enjoy the abuse of Peter. We turn now to Acts 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. Now, we'll see in a minute that prayer was answered. He was kept in prison. That means they had to keep Herod Agrippa the first had to keep him there until the feast was over because he couldn't execute him during the feast. So he was kept in prison until after the, the Passover and Unleavened Bread festival was over. And during that time, the church kept praying for him. Now, the church was not gathered at one place for prayer, as Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, because it was not safe to meet in a public assembly anywhere. So they prayed scattered throughout their homes, and they prayed for about a week during this festival. Now, without that prayer... Here's a question. Would Peter's miraculous escape have followed without the prayer? I, I can't answer that. Adam Clark says no. If they hadn't prayed, Peter would still be in jail. Peter would be executed. I can't answer deep questions like that, but I do know this. When you get in trouble and your or your fellow Christians get in trouble, you better start praying. You better not start asking theological questions. You better start praying. Acts 12, verse 6. On the night before Herod was to bring him out for execution... Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the guard door guarded the prison. First of all, notice Peter was sleeping. He's going to be executed tomorrow, and he knows it. And he's sleeping. He's not worried. Hey, I'm going to be with Jesus tonight. I don't care. Now, how was he sleeping between two soldiers? Peter was lying down. His left wrist would be chained, and then the chain would be hooked to one soldier on his left side, and then his right wrist on his right side would be chained say at his wrist, and then the chain would run to the soldier sleeping on his right side. And the reason they did that was so that in case the prisoner tried to escape, it would wake the soldiers up, and then they could have their their extreme, their extreme hands that weren't chained down free to use a sword to stop it. This was the typical procedure. So he had Peter had soldiers sleeping, one to his left. Well, actually, Peter was sleeping. It doesn't say whether the soldiers were sleeping. I assume they were. The siege, of course, you know, the soldiers aren't supposed to sleep on. That's an interesting question. Soldiers are not supposed to sleep on their watch, I wouldn't think. But perhaps it was allowed that they sleep because they had other sentries in front of the door guarding the prison. And if Peter moved, it would wake the soldiers up. So I'm not sure whether they were sleeping or not. But at any rate, Peter was chained down to him, and he had no way of getting out of that prison. You notice now how much more heavily Peter is guarded than when he was arrested by the Sanhedrin in Acts 5.18, which I just mentioned. There, they just put him in jail, and he got out. Now, they're chaining him down, and they got four squads of four soldiers. It's the night before his execution, and then the angel shows up, which we'll read about in the next verse. Now, this shows, this is a good application here. God always waits to the last minute to deliver his people. I don't know why it is. I've been in so many bad spots in my life, and you think, God, when in the world are you going to answer this prayer? I can't stand this anymore. Please, please deliver me. Now, you know what the answer to that is? You better keep praying. Keep praying and keep praying. God always waits to the last minute. I always use a, a, a metaphor of I'm hanging over on a rope that's tied to a tree limb that extends over a huge bottomless canyon. And 
I'm sliding down that rope and I'm getting tired and I'm sliding and say, God, please deliver me. Getting, you know, if I fall off this rope, I'm going to go to my death to the bottom of this canyon. I keep sliding down the rope, no answer, no answer, no answer. So I'm down to the very end of the rope and one hand falls off the end of the rope. Now I'm hanging by one hand. God, please answer me. I need some help here. Jesus, where are you? Then the one hand starts sliding down. And pretty soon I'm hanging on to the end of the rope by my index finger and my thumb squeezing as hard as I can. I need some help here. God, where are you? And then all of a sudden I get so tired that my hand turns loose. And just as I begin to fall from the rope, Jesus comes down and says, Okay, I got you. That's typical how it, typically how it is. And this is an example of it here. Peter was saved at the last minute. Where was he in prison, by the way? It's probably the Tower of Antonia. Antonia or Antonia. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, come to think of it. At the northwest corner of the temple, this is the famous prison where Paul was held. And if that's the case, if Peter was in the same place, Paul was held there because we know from Acts 21:34, and he came back from his third missionary journey. The Jerusalem mob came after him. Some of the mob were shouting one thing and some another since he was not able to get reliable, that means the Roman official, was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar. He, the Roman official, ordered him to be taken into the barracks, and that's the Roman barracks at the famous temp, uh, prison of Antonia. I just stopped my recording here to look up the pronunciation of Antonia, and yeah, one website says Antonia, another website says a website said Antonia just goes to show there ain't much standard about pronunciation. Santania is what I'm going to use. All right, returning from our rabbit trail, going to Acts 12, verse 7. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he, that's the angel, woke him, woke Peter up and said, Quick, get up. Then the chains fell off his wrist. Now that light was either from the angel or it was the glory of the Lord's. Then I've study Bible says, whatever. It was divine light flooded the cell. Now, the next question is, did the soldiers remain sleeping when that light came? Obviously, they didn't stop Peter when the angels struck off the chains. It says the chains fell off his wrist. I assume the angels did it. Struck the chains off his wrist, and where were the soldiers? Adam Clark says it appears that the two soldiers were overwhelmed by a deep sleep which fell upon them from God. Well, in my opinion, I would think the bright light would have staggered and cowered the soldiers. And they're thinking, what in the world is going on here? They've been blinded by the light as Peter gets up and goes. That's what I think happened myself. Acts 12:8. Get dressed, the angel told him, told Peter, and put on your sandals. And he did so. Put on your sandals and get dressed. Peter was sleeping in his underwear, his tunic. And he had to put on his outer cloak. And, of course, he had taken his shoes off to sleep. So the angel told him to get dressed. And he, um, this is Peter, did so. Peter immediately did what the angel said. He didn't waste around time saying, well, why? What's going on here? Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. Now, all this graphic minuteness of detail, says Jameson Fawcett and Brown, gives the whole account a, quote, charming mark of reality. Yes, it does. That's why I love details, because it makes it real. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say the rapidity and curtness of the order show there was necessity for haste. And we also see the promptness of Peter, how Peter obeyed, showed that there was a necessity for haste. They had to get out of there before the soldiers were alerted to the fact that Peter was missing. Now, that phrase, get dressed, i got to tell a personal story here. I was sleeping in, in Lowning Province in the countryside. We, I was involved in a teaching seminar for Chinese workers who had who slept in the fields and 
They would go into the cities with the farmers at the beginning of the day and come back at night. And then the weekend, they would come to this big farmhouse and have teaching seminars. So we were in there teaching them. And I and three others, three other men, were lying on this Kong, this this. In the north of China, they have these beds that are got coal under them, and they're flat, and they're hard. And we were sleeping on there just as sound as we could about 2 o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, the door pops open, no knocking, just pops open. And this young woman who was in charge of a lot of the stuff going on amongst the Christians there, I don't know who she was, but I had seen her around. She was kind of in charge of things. She just popped open the door. Which is kind of, if you think about it, improper because we've got four men in there sleeping and she didn't bother to, you know, lock. She just popped the door open and says, get dressed. The same thing the angel told Peter. And I remember when, uh, and she popped that, and this is in English now, so we understood it. And she popped it open, get dressed, and she says, pack your bags, get everything off the walls, get all the towels. Don't leave any gum wrappers on the floor, any candy wrappers, get it all taken up. There should be no evidence that you were here. And she was just barking out orders to us. And we are half Asleep. We were tired, jet-lagged, and tired anyway, and it was the middle of the morning, about 2 o'clock in the morning, and we're staggering around trying to figure out what is going on, and of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this cannot be good. <laughs> this cannot be good. Well, what had happened was, is there was a breach in security, and the local police had found out we were out there, and it was time to get on the road, and it was a pretty frightening experience. But I remember the disorientation, and also it's it's still as vivid to me. It was years ago that it happened, and it's still as vivid to me now as it was back then, because that's something when you get woke up in the middle of the night and told by somebody to get dressed. Now, and we we didn't have an angel do it. We just had a human being do it. Can you imagine what Peter thought when he saw an angel doing that? We go to verse twelve, uh, chapter twelve, verse nine. So he Peter went out and followed, followed the angel, and he Peter did not know what took place. Through the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Now, John Gill makes the point is that Peter probably knew the angel was real, but what he didn't know was the angel was showing him how to get out of prison, and he didn't know whether he was getting shown a vision so he would know how to get out of the vision or whether this was really the way out right now, whether he was looking at a vision of how to get out or whether he was looking at the actual stones and pathways to get out. I think Gill is probably right. And you got to remember, he's probably Peter's still shaking the cobwebs out of his head, so that would make him more likely to get confused about what was real and what was not real. We go to verse 10, chapter 12, Acts. After they passed the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opens to them by itself. All right, so there were two sentry posts that led to the outside iron gate that opened up into the streets of Jerusalem. They went outside and passed one street, and that means passed down the length of, not passed horizontally, but walking down vertically. They went outside and, and walked down vertically one street, and immediately the angel left him. In fact, the NIV translates that past as walked the length of one street, and then the angel left him. So the angel was with him for a while. Now the next question is, is how did Peter and the angel get past these guard posts where the soldiers were? Here's some options as how Peter and the angel got past without being seen. The soldiers could have been asleep. That's supposed to not be a good idea for soldiers to do that. It could be that Peter and the angel sneaked by them unobserved. That's, I think I don't think the soldiers were asleep. I think they had more concern for their lives because if they fall asleep, you know, they get executed by the Romans. In fact, these soldiers are going to get executed by Herod when it turns out that Peter's escaped. So I think that probably what happened was Peter and the angel sneaked by these sentry posts unobserved. 
And, of course, that might not be so hard. It's the middle of the night, and who in the world would be expecting Peter to be walking out of his cell? The door is locked. He's chained down between two soldiers. Now, here's, a, here's an application point. Peter is rescued at the last minute. This is the last night before the end of the Passover. I, I think it is. It's near the end of the time that he was in there. And Herod is getting ready to execute him. When he gets out of jail, he's going to die. And God waits to the last minute to to rescue his people. I think I've already mentioned that. And this is, so I'll mention it again. Peter is rescued at the last minute. One last point. The iron gate that leads into the city, what they got, which, which they got to after the two-century post, they opened by itself. I assume that means that the angels opened it because they, they would be locked ordinarily. We go to verse chapter 12, verse 11. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. Now, Herod came to himself. That's because he's still pretty gobsmacked by what had happened. He was in a deep sleep, and all of a sudden he sees a bright light, and the angel's aware, there, and he's not sure whether he's in a vision or whether he's actually in reality. Well, now he knows he's in reality. And Peter says, I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me. Gill points out that Herod was planning on killing him in just a few hours in the morning. I don't know how John Gill knows that it was the next day that he was probably trying to be, that he was going to be executed. But let's assume that Gill was right. The angel got him out at the last minute. Now, what did the people expect? Peter was rescued, this verse says, verse 11, from all that the Jewish people expected. What were they expecting? Well, they had already seen James, the son of Zebedee, beheaded already, so they expected Peter to be beheaded. And this shows that Peter was fully expecting to be executed. He knew James had gotten executed. He knew he was going to be executed. And yet, what was he doing? Sleeping like a baby. Sleeping like a baby in the prison. That shows what happens, what your attitude is when you have faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, Acts chapter 12. When he, Peter, realized this, when he realized that he was in reality now not in a vision, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. Now this Mary is the mother of John and the aunt of Barnabas. John Mark and Barnabas were cousins. Of course, that's the famous Barnabas on the first missionary journey. The famous Barnabas who got Paul to escape from Jerusalem when Paul was being persecuted by the Jews. The same Barnabas who went to Tarsus to get Paul from Tarsus and carry him back to Antioch and to work with Paul in the 40s to build up that church at Antioch. Same Barnabas. And John Mark is mentioned here because he is also fairly prominent too. He's the two prominent cousins, mainly because he wrote the book of Mark, one of the four Gospels. He was the guy that was on the first missionary journey with Paul and, and abandoned them at Pamphylia. And Paul the Apostle didn't appreciate it and said, I'm not going to take you on the second journey because you don't have what it takes and that kind of stuff. So he's kind of famous. Mary is speculated that Mary had a big house because she was wealthy. This is how the logic goes on that. We know that Barnabas was wealthy enough to own land because Barnabas sold some of his land at the time in Acts 4 when the church was holding things in common and everybody was selling their property and giving it to the apostles. Barnabas was one of them, Acts 4, 36-37. Joseph, a Levite and Cypriot by birth, the one the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Another place it says Barnabas was full of faith in the Holy Spirit. He was a good guy, famous guy, and John Mark was his cousin. Well, anyway, going back to my point here, if if Joseph, if, if Barnabas was wealthy enough to sell land, it's speculated 
that his aunt might have been wealthy too. And that's a speculation, you know, just because your nephew's rich doesn't mean the aunt's rich, but that's a speculation, and the, and, the, and the speculation is Mary must have had a big house and a bunch of people got there together and prayed. Well, who knows? Possibly this place could have been where the upper room where the last could have been, could have contained the upper room where the last supper was held, as many people speculate. Some people say it was the place of prayer when Pentecost, a place of prayer in Acts, not Pentecost, but in Acts 4.31 when they had prayed, the place where they had assembled were shaken, and they all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. That's a different. That's not Pentecost, another place. So it's speculated that's where they were praying in Mary's upper, upper room. Now John Mark, he's mentioned here because as because he shows up a lot in the later narrative, and Luke introduces him here. It wasn't necessary that he mentioned John Mark here, but he did, probably just to get him introduced into the narrative. Some people speculate, and this is a big speculation, that he was the man who fled on the night of Jesus' arrest, Mark 14, 51 through 52. Now, a certain young man, having a linen cloth wrapped around his naked body, was following him. They called hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. I discussed that in my discussion of Mark chapter 14, and it's very interesting who this guy was. Some people say it was Mark. We do know for certain that he wrote the second gospel, and he accompanied Barnabas and Saul on the first journey. Now, they were all praying together in Mary's house there. What were they praying for? Probably for Peter's deliverance, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. And he also said this was on the last day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So he, like Gil, say that the next day Peter was to be executed. I'm not sure how they know that. I take their words for it. Acts 12, verses 13 through 14. He, Peter, knocked at the door in the gateway, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gateway. Now, Rhoda was a servant girl, but she was probably a Christian. She was probably, because she, she, how else can you explain her joy upon hearing Peter's voice? She's probably one of the ones praying that Peter get out of jail or that God would deliver Peter. She didn't bother to let him in. She just ran back into the, to the house where all of her fellow Christians were praying and said, Hey, Peter's at the doorway. Peter's at the doorway. Now, probably they had a gate around a gate, a courtyard, a small courtyard, and that gate had a locked door on it. And then you go through the courtyard, then you go through the front door of the house. And so Peter was probably at the gate of the courtyard. Now, this remember, this is in the middle of the night, in the wee hours of the morning. You say, why? She's not expecting anybody to knock at the wee hours of the morning. So she goes out there. It says to answer, but she might have gone out there just to find out who's knocking at the gate in the middle of the night. And, of course, that outer gate would be locked because of fear of the Jews. She might have, Groda might have gone out just to hear who was knocking with no intention of opening, opening the gate for fear of who's going to be knocking in the middle of the night. But anyway, she runs back into the house and says, Peter's out there. Acts 12, verse 15. You're crazy, they told her. <laughs> so It's kind of like this, the apostles when they got message from the women at the tomb, at the resurrection tomb. Uh-uh. Jesus ain't risen from the dead. This is too good to be true. And here, Peter standing at the door, you're crazy. That's too good to be true, too. But she kept insisting that it was true. Rhoda didn't back down. She says, I'm telling you, I heard him. And then they said, it's his angel. Well, what do they mean, it's his angel? Well, this reflected the personal beliefs of the people present there. Here's what people believed back then. Everyone has a personal angel that ministers to him, a guardian angel, as Adam Clark says, and the NIV study Bible say. And that angel occasionally shows himself. And so the people are thinking, ah, Peter had his guardian angel, must have showed up at the gate to, to show that I'm looking out for him or something, but that ain't really Peter. 
Now, this guardian angel was supposed to resemble the person under his care. So not only was he a guardian angel, but he was sort of a doppelganger. He looked like the person he was looking after. That's Adam Clark says that. And Clark also adds another interesting idea that popular belief is that many that the Jews thought that the souls of departed men officiated as angels. So this angel out here might not only have been a guard, guardian angel, but might have been Peter's departed spirit because Peter has already been executed, murdered in prison. And so now his spirit is arriving at Mary's house to announce the news or to warn the church. So that's what the Jews are thinking. Now, just because they think that doesn't mean it's true. And of course, it's not true. It was really Peter in the flesh. This idea of guardian angels, of course, is not totally superstition. Matthew 18:10. See that you don't look down on one of these little ones, Jesus says, because I tell you that in heaven their angels continually view the face of my Father in heaven. So an angel looking after a little kid is looking up at God the Father at the same time. Looking after those kids, Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? So God, in his plan and providence, he uses angels to help people. I mean, you know, think about it. Jesus himself could have appeared in a theophany and busted, busted Peter out of jail. But, he sent an angel, but God sent an angel instead. Jesus sent an angel instead. I don't know why, you know, but that's just the way God does things. And if you really think about it, most of the workings of the world are still maintained in in place when these miraculous events happen. I mean, if you if you think about it even longer, think God could have just come in there and said, "Okay, I'm going to kill all. I'm going to kill here the grip of the first. We're going to poison everybody. We're going to we're going to wipe out all these soldiers, and we're going to take Peter out of the jail, and we're going to and we're going to establish the kingdom of God on earth right now. We're going to abolish all pain, all suffering. You know, God could do that, but He doesn't." He leaves things, he leaves the human race in its condition, working out its its destiny according to its human being's choices. And then when things get real bad because of those stupid choices, he will, re- he will reach down and he will rescue his, his elect. But then he puts them back into the nasty world to continue to have faith to believe in God to deliver them. He doesn't deliver them all at once. It's the same thing here with Peter. Peter had to go back into the world, and eventually he was caught and read and, and executed. He didn't. He wasn't. He was delivered here, but he wasn't delivered at the end. So, what I'm saying here is, miracles are not a panacea. I mean, God does miracles for you, but you got to have faith in Him and trust in Him all the way through to the end. Because just because you got delivered once doesn't mean you're gonna get delivered again. It all depends on what God wants for you at that time. And I suspect God didn't want Peter to go down again. He's one of the big leaders of the church. Got to keep that church going. Verse 16. Oh, let me, one more point. They originally, before they thought it was Peter's angel, the people in Mary's house thought that Rhoda was crazy. So they went from from the idea that that Rhoda was crazy to it's a Peter's angel. Now, that shows that the ancients were not all credulous that they just willy-nilly believed in miracles. I mean, in the modern age, of course, nobody believes in miracles, hardly. Hardly anybody does. But back then in the, in the New Testament, there was a lot of people didn't believe in miracles, even when they had credible evidence right in front of them. So if, if they did, if they believed in miracles automatically, then miracles would cease to be miraculous. They would be ordinary. They would be commonplace. So this was a big miracle to them, just as it would be a big miracle to us. Acts 12, verse 16. Peter, however, kept on knocking. He's probably saying, Rhoda, why did you leave me out here? I'm knocking. Uh, the Jews are lo- probably looking for me by now, and here I am standing in the street, and you're in there blabbing away with the fellow Christians in there, but I'm out here knocking. How about let me in? 
And when they opened the door and saw him, that's the Christians there in Mary's house, opened the door and saw him, they were astounded. Of course they were astounded. Peter was one day away from getting executed. Why was Peter trying to come in? Well, because he didn't want to get caught by the Jews again. And also he might have been anxious to see his friends, but I think more probably he didn't want to get caught by the Jews. Acts 12, verse 17, motioning to them with his hand to be silent with Peter's hand. Peter is motioning to the Christians to be silent. He explained to them how the Lord had brought them out of prison. They were, they were probably going, Peter, Peter, go. Oh, so good to see you, brother. How in the world did you get out of prison? They're probably excited and talking. And he says, ho, 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 ho. Let me just, don't ask me any more questions. I'll explain it to you point by point, beginning to end. He explained to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. The Lord, through the angels, had brought him out of the prison. Report these things to James and the brothers. Now, that James, of course, is not the James that got executed at the beginning of this chapter. That's the executed James was James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. This James is one of the pillar apostles there, James, the brother of Jesus. Peter says, report these things to James and the brothers. James, because he was a leader, the brothers of the, those, the other Christians there in the church. Notice that... Whenever you got mention of a leader, he's always mentioned with the brothers or the elders or somebody else. And very rarely, I don't. In fact, I can't even think of a time where you just mention the leader alone without the other brothers alone. There, there was no hierarchy and hypocrisy in the early church, unlike certain charismatic churches I know, like a lot of charismatic churches I know, not run by one a one man dictator. Report these things to James and the brothers, he said. Then he departed and went to a different place. Now, where that different place was, nobody knows. The Roman Catholics, the Papists, as Gill and Clark poetically or picturesquely call the Catholics, the Papists say that is when he went to Rome. There's no evidence of that at all. You know, the last time Peter escaped, he stayed and preached in the temple complex in Acts 5 when he escaped from the Sanhedrin. Now, when he's escaping from Herod Agrippa I, Peter got out of Dodge. Different time, different place. The first time, this is my speculation, the reason that Peter stayed and preached was because the populace was all on Peter's side at that time, and now they're not. That's a speculation on my part, but at any rate, Peter left and escaped. Let's go back to this place where Peter motioned with his hand to be silent. Why did he do that? I just said it's because he was trying to shut him up so he could explain. There's another possible reason. Maybe he didn't want to alarm the neighborhood. This is the middle of the night, and people making a bunch of noise. It might cause, cause attention to themselves. So we say, look, hey, cool it. We've got to be quiet here. I suppose that that had something to do with it, too. We go to verses 18 and 19 of Acts chapter 12, and I'll finish up this audio. At daylight, that's just a few hours later, of course, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what would become of Peter. Now, it sounds like they didn't really know what happened to him until daylight, which makes me think that Peter and the angel successfully sneaked by the century post with no trouble. Now, how does the, well, what about the ones that were sleeping next to Peter with the chains on his arm? Why did they wait to daylight before they started saying, hey, what happened to him? I said they were blinded by the light. Maybe they were in a deep sleep. Maybe Peter, maybe the angel sneaked Peter out of there without the soldiers seeing what was going on. And then the soldiers woke up, whoops, where is he? Verse 19, after Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. And that phrase there is going to introduce our next section of Acts 19, how Herod Agrippa gets his own, gets rewarded for his killing of these guards and for his killing of James and for his trying to kill Peter. He himself is going to get executed by God himself. That's next audio. Right now, 
let's look at the verses 18 and 19 here and point out that there was a great commotion among the soldiers. Why? Because the soldiers knew their lives were at stake. Because if you are charged with keeping a prisoner and the prisoner disappears, you're not long for this world. And as a matter of fact, that's what happened to them. They got executed. And of course, why was Herod interrogating the soldiers? To see if they might have been bribed and by the church and let Peter out because of a bribe. Of course, you got to see if that happened. And I'm sure, of course, they all denied it. Didn't do any good. At daylight, it says, there was a great commotion among the soldiers. Peter was probably released by the angels at the fourth watch. It was 3 to 6 o'clock a.m. in the wee hours of the morning. Jameson Foster Brown points out that if he had been released before the fourth watch, then Peter's absence would have been noticed at the change of the watch, which happened at 3 o'clock. The soldiers switched out. And they would have, the soldiers sleeping with Peter with the chains on their arm would have said, time to go. Oops, where's Peter? So it happened somewhere after the fourth watch between 3 and 6 o'clock a.m. Now, I got one little ethical question here. These soldiers were executed. They didn't do anything wrong. And if you wanted to be somewhat presumptuous and maybe even quasi-blasphemous, you could say, hey, God calls the, the execution of innocent people. Well, my answer to that is, they weren't so innocent, really. They were working for a murderous tyrant, Herod Agrippa I. Think about it. Uh, let's say that Dietrich Bonhoeffer tries to assassinate Hitler during World War II, which he did. The attempt failed. Now, I don't remember the details of this story. Well, I don't know if Hitler actually ordered his guards to be assassinated, uh, to be executed. But let's say he did. Are we going to blame Bonhoeffer for trying to kill Hitler? who's murdering six million Jews and gosh knows how many other people? No, we're not going to blame Bonhoeffer for that. And if it happens that the guards are executed when the plot fails, well, that's just the fortunes of war. And likewise, those guards are they're working for Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa. They're working for an unjust, ungodly boss, political boss. That's the, that's the risk you take when you do that. You want to work for Hitler, you might end up at the Nuremberg War Trials, for example. So so I don't think that's an ethical problem at all. All right, with that, we have finished with Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. In our next audio, we will take up, start with verse 20, go to the end of the chapter, and see how Herod Agrippa I meets his demise. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and hope you join, enjoyed this one.